that thread was just like this single thought and I was like, wait a minute, I haven't thought about this before. And then I just pull it and bam, it just, it just happened. It, it kind of felt like there was a really, really dark closet in my mind where I was shoving all these things Oh yeah, I know I have pride, but I don't want to deal with it. I know I'm a hypocrite in these ways, but I don't want to deal with it. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And then um, it, it was just one thought after another that led to, I don't think God's real. Welcome back to Theology in Progress. Today, I am doing my first interview, and I'm interviewing Nate, aka the Philosophical Misfit. So Nate, how about you introduce yourself really quickly? Um, tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Nate, aka the Philosophical Misfit, uh, as you said, and um, basically my YouTube channel is, uh, well, it's just one of the many things that I do, but my YouTube channel um, is exactly how it sounds, the Philosophical Misfit. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my pastors are parents. Uh, well, my pastors are, my parents are pastors. There we go. Got that one out. Um, and so... Uh, just growing up in that and uh, then you know, through growing up, I'm a musician as well. So I was on the worship team, became a worship team leader and um, then eventually went to ministry school, la da 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 da, about three years ago, uh, just really started deconstructing and questioning everything, all of my beliefs, um, went insane for a little bit, um, <laughs> quite literally and uh, then I decided to start this YouTube channel. It actually, starting it out, it wasn't called The Philosophical Misfit. It was called something else. But then I realized that who I am and my story and just everything uh, that I want to do, I'm like, yeah. So it, w it was We Can't Be Bought, um, but then I changed it to The Philosophical Misfit and I started talking about um, everything that I talk about my on my YouTube channel from – uh, what is true love and motivational videos to philosophy and physics and just questioning everything, being super skeptical and, you know, does God exist? Does he not exist? And how do we know? How can we tell? Um, and then, yeah, so that's the philosophy. So I look at myself kind of and other people see me as a sort of misfit um, just because of my background and my story and just um, where I am currently in life. So that's one of the things that I do. And then I also have a recording studio and I am a uh, independent artist, Nation Haven on iTunes, Spotify, all, play, all streaming platforms. And uh, so that's basically who I am and what I do. Um, I, I mean, is that good? Is, am I missing anything that you know of? No, that's good. I'll be sure to ask cool. more questions as I feel like it but and i'll be sure also to include some links in the show notes to your youtube channel and your music as well cool yeah no i did i mean i was i i didn't know if you wanted me to go into the full story of it all so i was just being you know getting getting some of the points out there on why i call my youtube channel that and i mean that's how you found that's how you found me and uh that's yeah. why we're here so which is super awesome and I actually wanted to ask you about the name of your channel a little bit. Why would you consider yourself a misfit? Like, it makes sense in my mind, kind of from where you grew up, you're sort of a misfit in that crowd. Um, do you mm -hmm. feel like you don't fall into the opposite kind of atheistic crowd of you've left Christianity and religion? And do you feel a little bit like a misfit there as well in that circle? Oh yeah, no. I've even when I was a uh, Christian, and even when I w was, uh, you know, in ministry school, and just really 
devout and really devoted. Um, and it's not that I'm not devout or devoted. It just looks different now and it doesn't look like Christianity. Um, but I mean, through my entire life, I've always felt like a misfit. I've always felt um, just really singled out. And even it's funny, it literally every personality test that I take <laughs> is like your personality is 2% of the world's population. And I'm like, well, that that makes sense. That explains a lot of my life. Um, That's amazing. And yeah, yeah. And so even just uh, always, always feeling misunderstood in some way, like I can, I can very like carefully try to articulate with my words as, as much as I can, what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, what's going on. Um, but at the same time, it's just like, I'll get it out and I'll feel like I do a really good job. And then people are like, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't. Oh, so that's been, that's just been most of my life is like, you know, I, I feel all these things and I sense all these things and I'm like, how do I interpret this into words? And most of my research and most of my studying is just me simply trying to figure out how to put what I'm feeling into words. Mm -hmm. And really if my feelings are accurate in any way. Um, but even with, uh, yeah, I mean, man, even with music taste, uh, growing up, even with, uh, friends and family, uh, my family, it's, it's interesting. My family is like a misfit family because on my dad's side, everyone is super, super, super conservative, uh, Mennonite background. Oh, wow. And on my mom and on my mom's side, it's not quite the opposite, but it's, it's far, it's, it's far enough the other way that we can say the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've always felt out of place, even with my family. Like, you know, when going to see extended family, I'm like, yeah, these are technically blood relatives, but I'm like, who, like, I still, to this day, I don't even know the names of all my first cousins. And I'm just like, you know, and I only see them twice a year. So it's just kind of been a thing that I've always felt, um, was a part of me. And then the philosophical part of the philosophical misfit, um, came in really when, uh, the last, in the last three years. And when, you know, I mean, I heard a number of times in the church growing up, like there's no need for philosophy, philosophy, is uh, bad or, you know, whatever other term they use to describe philosophy. And then when I started reading it, when I started looking into it, it started like setting me free. Like I was like, this, these are the thoughts that I have all the time. Like this is why, why haven't I seen this before? And so uh, even me telling a lot of my older uh, old friends that, that were, we used to hang out when we were, you know, uh, well, they, they're still Christians, but we don't hang out as much anymore, if at all, uh, since I've taken this turn. Um, you know, I, I talked to them about it and they're like, why are you, why are you studying philosophy? Like, there's no, no point in studying that. And I'm like, man, <laughs> you know, that's another one of those things where I just feel so misunderstood. Yeah. Like, I'm like, man, you don't get it. Like, this is setting me free. Like, I feel like I could finally put to words, the things that I've been feeling my whole life. So I just feel like, um, it, and it took a lot of thought to decide what I was going to name my YouTube channel, but all of that wrapped up in that's how I got to the philosophical misfit. Yeah. And it's a good title. As far as YouTube channels go, I remember seeing it and thinking, man, that just sounds like an interesting show because I think that there are frankly, a lot of us who, you know, each of us would feel it in different ways and to different extents. I've never felt like this constant angst of being misunderstood. But I often feel mm -hmm. like I kind of align 
with different groups on different topics and I don't neatly fall into one camp. And so like seeing something like yeah. that, I'm like, oh, there's probably the kind of people that I want to talk to would be in a community like that. Um, so it's something I've, I've been a part of your, you know, live Q&A chats on Friday nights. And I've always found just the community there. You know, every now and then the, the trolls will pop up. But for the most part, oh, yeah, for the most part, it's a really neat group of people who are just trying to seek the truth. And literally, that's what I want to do with this yeah. podcast theology in progress. It's in progress because our understanding of God, if God does mm -hmm. exist, and I do believe that he does, he would have to be infinite. And our understanding is always finite. So our understanding of God would have to always be in progress, never yeah. this solid conclusion. And I've grown up in churches and environments where all talking about God felt like it was a conclusion, not a sentence in progress, not a dialogue, but just this monologue with a clear ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, what that reminds me of um, is so some of the guys that I went to ministry school with um, are in the same exact place that I am. And uh, I would say even even further so down the line of disbelief. Um, and one of my buddies who is going to it's it's I think it's called the school of the divine. Um, and it's not divine, like meaning Christian It's divine, meaning like all divinities. Um, okay. And so he's he's learning a lot. And he was telling me about this guy that he's been studying um, or just his his works and uh, his name is John Caputa. I don't. I don't know if you've heard of him. I have not. Um, yeah. So he. Uh, well, he has a lot to say about exactly what you were talking about with, um, and you know, being an infinite God and unconditional, um, and then we as humans being so conditional and finite. And so he talks about what is what does unconditional really look like, and he talks about you know we our human minds have. Uh, have almost degraded God to a being, but if God is truly infinite, then he's beyond that. Then he's beyond anything that we can even fathom. And uh, that was that was something that I watched a whole lecture that he had on. It's called The Unconditional Theology. It was really, really interesting. But another thing that you reminded me of that my friend was telling me about was um, like how you said it's, it's, it's in progress, you know, theology in progress. And... Um, so what I something I used to believe was in creationism that the earth was only six to ten thousand years old. I no longer you know hold to that. Um, and so because I I see a lot of issues in it, and one of the main ones that I see is like so many Christians that I saw in the past was um, they would they would say you know this is truth. This is uh, you know Adam and Eve in the garden. It happened. But then when you really look at it, it looks like God made a mistake and the cross was Plan B. And if we're going to really look at the Bible and see, you know, the gospel as, um, you know, not necessarily the ending, but that if the Bible, what it says is true is that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. If that's, you know, true, then it wasn't a plan B and it was plan A all along. And so for the creationist view of things, there, it's more of a plan B. But when you look at evolution, then you see that the cross was actually like always plan A. And he told me, uh, my buddy, I forget who it was, but he told me about this theory that um, like we viewed creation happening in, uh, or maybe you still do, I don't know, uh, creation happened in seven days. Um, but then he was telling me about a theory of theology out there 
which follows along the lines of evolution, that when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he was saying that the creation of humans is finished and that Jesus was like the finisher of what every human should look like. And uh, I was like, that makes sense to me. You know, I that's something that I'm personally going to research a bit more once I learn more about it um, or find out more about it and where that came from. But it's things like it's things like that that I I that really interest me. And I don't know that just those those are the thoughts I had when you were talking about theology and progress because that's that's exactly what comes to mind when I think of that. Yeah, and I definitely agree that. Well, to say a couple of things first. Uh, you mentioned philosophy a little while ago and how growing up in church, it was kind of something that was always looked down on. And you mentioned how like this was kind of the thing that once you found it, it was like, yes, these were the questions I've been trying to articulate and trying to answer my whole life. And I had a very, very similar experience. And it wasn't so much that the Christian community that I was in was trying to lead me away from that or trying to make sure mm -hmm. I didn't read it. I just didn't know. And they didn't know that those things even existed. But I remember never enjoying reading like at all until I first yeah. found some theology books. And then I eventually yeah. kind of got tired of those theology books. And then I found some philosophy books and some of them by Christian philosophers, some by non-Christian philosophers. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is what I was wanting to find this whole time. These are the questions yeah. where it's approached with this youthful like, you know, Aristotle said that philosophy begins and it terminates in wonder. You wonder about yeah. something, and that leads you to wonder, to ask questions. And then even when you get your best tentative answers, you're still left in this state of awe. And so that's why, going back to kind of your next points with, like, creationism and stuff like that, like, I think it was – that was something where I grew up definitely being told that these things are definitely true, and to deny them is to deny all of Christianity. And I just don't think that – God is a helicopter parent like that. You know, I think that he wants us to approach the Bible as a book of wisdom from which we try to yeah. build our theology. And he's not interested in just giving us all of the answers. He wants us to enjoy the process of thinking things through. Um, mm -hmm. There's a proverb that says it is the glory of God to conceal a thing and it is the glory of kings to search it out. To seek it out. Yeah. 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 That's been a verse I've tried to live by. I love that. I mean, even if, you know, and I, I've said this on my live uh, streams before, it's like, you know what, even if you are completely atheist and don't believe in God, if you look at the life of Jesus, whether you believe that he was a real person or not, if you look at the life of Jesus, then you're like, yo, if everyone lived like that dude, like the world would be a better place. And I also say like, you know, even God, no God, Bible, true, not true the principles that are laid in the Bible, like that principle, like that Bible verse, because I don't look at it as just a Bible verse. I think it's a principle to live by. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's useful in life, whether, despite what you believe. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting. I was talking to my wife, not that long ago, and we were just talking about, you know, our own journeys with Christianity and just being honest with one another and saying, you know, some days I feel like I'm totally in and committed. Some days I feel like I don't really believe it. And we were talking through like, okay, I am 100% sure that living the life of Christ, that practicing compassion, that sacrificing myself for the love of others, that that's a good thing. I'm 100% sure of that. And then as far as mm -hmm. other things, 
it kind of goes down a percentage. Like I'm, you know, maybe 80 to 90% sure that the overall Christian story is true. Then I maybe when it comes down to like the details of the Bible, that every verse is inspired from God, you know, that goes more down to like 60%. And it's just being willing and able to hold the different aspects of how you think about the world kind of to their proportionate value, not making everything a mountain to die on, but being able yeah. to kind of take things yeah. one at a time. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I, well, agree with you in a sense that, um, you know, like, like with me, there's things that, well, I, I say this, but really everything is kind of up in the air because, you know, there's, there's things that I want, like, this is why I don't say I'm atheist is because there's things that I want to believe in. Like, I don't want to believe, you know, I don't want those three years that I went to ministry school to be a complete waste. I don't want every, you know, my entire life, uh, living, you know, as a Christian or pastor's kid up until the age 22, you know, to be a waste. And I mean, no, it's not a waste, but I'm like, you know, I, I poured so much into it. Um, that I'm like, you know, I want it to be concrete and real. And so there's certain things that I look at, like the life of Jesus, like the gospel. And I'm like, man, if this is real, like there's, there's stuff to this. But then again, it's like, um, you know, I, I don't know if uh, you've watched my, uh, or been watching my series that I've been doing on my channel of truth, but I did this study on the philosophy of truth. And um, it's like the, if, if you got this, this series of facts, and then one thing falls apart, then it's like, everything else falls apart. And it's, I mean, it's a form of the liar's paradox, but then that's kind of, that's kind of how I look at a lot of these things that are up in the air for me is I'm like, man, yeah, like this could be like, you know, historical accuracy of the Bible, you know, that could be a thing like, you know, uh, like, you know, different things that are in science and physics, like it directly correlates to things that are written in the Bible. But I'm like, and so I look at that and I'm like, you know, this could be like this, this could be evidence. But then I always go back to the fact where it's like, wait a minute, like, what, but you know, if Jesus isn't, wasn't the son of God, if he was just a dude and God isn't real, then that everything just falls through the cracks. It's all, you know, it's all just, yeah. yeah. So no, I've been I I yeah. watched a few of those videos. I kind of binged your most recent videos yesterday to kind of make sure that I was up to date because I slacked off for a little while and keeping up. But um, cool. no, I totally agree that there's something about just the nature of pursuing truth and the way that they all fit together that it can be intimidating. You know, there have you read? Um, you've mentioned him, but have you read through the the um what's it called meditations on first philosophy by Descartes, where he kind of goes through the whole process of thinking like, okay, how do I know any of this is actually real? Um, I think I have discourse on the method. That's it. I think um, so. And I think, yeah, yeah, no, I read discourse on the method and that's man, Descartes really, that's where I started. Like that, that book, uh, discourse on the method where I think, I think it's also called, um, whatever you said, i forget what you uh um, meditations what'd you say the yeah 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 um i think it might it might be the same book i'm not yeah, even i'm sure. not positive um, either yeah it's, i read that either they're the same thing we're talking about or they're very similar themes but yeah what what was your experience reading that the first time 
Oh man, I because that was very very real for me. Um, when three years ago, when I had a nervous breakdown, and that's when I stopped believing in God. Um, I went through that point of, I mean, it was it was wild, man. It was like a two weeks to a month period of me. Um, and I still, I've still experienced it from time to time. It's a, it's a, um, disorder really called, um, depersonalization and derealization. Um, and that's just a fancy way of saying like, you feel like even when you're awake that you're dreaming, uh, that's the only way to describe it. It's like, you're awake, but you feel like you're in a dream all the time. And, so I felt like I felt that constantly without, you know, there was no rest from that for like two weeks. And so I was really like, am I real? You know, am, am I real? Is anything that surrounding me, what, what makes it real? And so I really, I started at that point that Descartes started at. And so I was like, oh, thank God. Like I'm not alone. Somebody in history yeah. went through this same exact thing. And then when I, you know, because in philosophy, it's really hard to argue Descartes' point of I think, therefore I am. Like, it's really hard to argue that. And so when I read that book, when I got to um, that point in the book where there was that uh, mantra um, or that um, whatever you call it, that that statement, that principle, um, I think, therefore I am. I was like, yes, that that's that's something to ground me. Um, from this point forward, like at least I know I'm thinking, at least I know I'm doubting. Um, and so that was, that was a real starting point for me. Yeah, for sure. So let's go back for a little bit. I want to go into more of your story in a little bit more detail. So can you tell me what it was like being raised as the pastor's kid who kind of had the Mennonite background, had the more liberal background going, what kind of church did you grow to? Um, well, I don't know if it was, uh, the liberal background. It's just, <laughs> let me, okay. So the two different sides of my family, one looks at alcohol as a sin and the other drinks. Every okay. Night. So <laughs> if that, that'll, that's that there, that sums it up, you know? Um, and so, um, now I forgot your question. What, just growing up in the church, what was that like? And being a pastor's yeah, and what, kid? What kind of church, uh, does your dad pastor? Yeah. So my dad pastors a non-denominational spirit filled charismatic church, uh, believing in all the gifts of the spirit, the very much a continuationist church. The gifts of the spirit are still alive and well today, as well as, uh, the fivefold ministers. Um, and yeah, it's been that way. I think he's been a pastor. He started the church and he's still pastoring, I think 22 years now, 23 years. Um, almost a span of my entire life. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, still going strong. And, um, so when did you become a Christian or when did you kind of make that confession of faith? Was it something that kind of, as young as you remember, you basically said you were a Christian? Yeah, well, I, I do, I do remember it happening. Um, and you know, it's funny because if you would have asked me this question when I was 21, it would have been different from now because when I was 21, um, I was very much, uh, very, you know, spirit filled Christian in the church, church leader, uh, uh, worship leader, um, you know, the, the full nine yards, very involved. Um, 
and now I'm not. I don't I don't go to church anymore. Um, and so looking at it then, I, you know, I would have said, yeah, I gave my life to uh, Christ when I was seven years old in my bedroom. Uh, my mom led me through the prayer. You know, I remember it, you know, in detail exactly what happened. Um, and I look back on that now uh, with a new lens and a new perspective. And I see, wow, like I I just did that because I wanted my mom to be impressed with me because I saw uh, I think I saw my brother or sister do it and I saw how happy and proud my parents were. And I was like, I, I want that same thing. Um, and so it took me a little while to ask, but I saw, like, I saw how happy my mom and dad were when a kid in the church or something would give their life to Christ. And so, um, I knew that would happen. And so as soon as I, um, asked my mom to lead me in the prayer, I mean, she was just ecstatic. I mean, she was so happy. And so obviously that made me as a kid, like, yes, like, you know, I'm, my parents are proud of me. Um, and I look back at that and I'm like, man, like that was a, I mean, yeah, I was a kid. I, I didn't know any better, but you know, that's, um, that's not actually giving my life to Christ. That's, that's, that's saying words to impress my parents. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, there's a big difference yeah, it's between just the interesting two. also that, you know, when you and I were young, cause I think we're similar ish ages, you're a bit older than I am by just a few years, but when we were growing up, you know, the, the, the model of what it meant to be a Christian was answered on the basis of, well, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? And that was kind of it. And, yeah. you know, even from a Christian perspective, thankfully, yeah. a lot of churches are kind of recognizing that it's so much more than that. And that that really is just a container. It's just a model. It's just an outward structure. And what matters, if anything real is happening, it's happening internally. Yeah. And so then, so that was when you were seven. And then you said you were really involved in church for a long time. Um, what what um, ministry school did you go to? So it's a ministry school out in Redding, California. It's called yeah. Bethel. Uh, so uh, a, lot, a lot of people sing their word. Everyone knows their worship music. Uh, so Bethel. Bethel Church out in Redding, California. Spent three years there, so it's not a. Um, it's it's kind of why I just leave it to ministry school at that because it's not a legit credited ministry school. It's a ministry school, but it's it's honestly it's more like a leadership yeah. development school um, that is focused around Holy Spirit, um, Christ centered things like i i did three years there and i walk out with a piece of paper saying i did school but no you know there's not going to be any job looking at that and that's like oh wow you went to bethel ministry school that's very yeah. accredited you know no, that's, that. that's just never gonna what happen. is your take on that school because i have some friends who are super pro bethel who've been through some of their training and who love it and from all i can tell they seem like mm -hmm. legit uh, people like they're not crazy. And then I have other friends who say that they know people who went there and said it was just the craziest thing in the world. So what's your take? Oh, it is the craziest thing in the world for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but, um, there are super legit people there. I'm actually going to go back for the first time, um, in October since I left, um, because I still have friends that go to that church. I still have friends that, um, go to the, not are in the school, but help volunteer at the school and stuff. Um, and actually one of my friends, she is going to, uh, their Royal Arts Academy, 
Um, and so, you know, I still, I still know a lot of people there. Some of my mentors are still there. Um, and they're on staff and they, you know, I've traveled with them and, uh, seen a lot of very interesting things. Um, and so story that like stands out that you would feel comfortable sharing. Uh, just as, just as like a weird, crazy thing or, uh, how about you do one of each, like one really cool thing and then one kind of more crazy thing. Oh man, it's, (laughs) it's okay. Honestly, it's kind of like when I first went there, it was like, this is crazy. It's just, it's, there's a thing when you go to Bethel that it's called the Bethel bubble. Everyone there knows it. Everyone there knows about it. It's just when you're around that community, when you're in that church, there's a Bethel bubble. You literally escape the real world when you're there. And then when you get, because everyone is the same, like everyone is a hundred percent all in going for it with God. Everyone is super huge dreamer, super motivated. And you get around these people and it's literally like you're spending. I mean, I feel like I spent three years at a charismatic spirit filled Christian conference. Um, And so it was like, you know, when I first went there, I mean, there was, a bunch of, I mean, you know, the manifestations that people did ranged all over the place, uh, from really crazy stuff. And, um, I mean, but there was also, I mean, man, I'm having a hard time describing anything because when you're in there, it's just so, it becomes so normal that it's like, when you're first there, it's like, wow, this is crazy and very intense and insane. And I'm drained all the time because of everything that's going on. And then the longer you're there, the more it just becomes normal. And so it's, it's kind of, I don't know if there was really any absolutely insane, crazy, crazy thing that happened. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was just all, it was just all a lot. <laughs> it yeah. was, it was all a lot. Three, three years of a lot. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just three, three years of a, of a Christian spirit filled conference. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a different way to put it that other people would understand, <laughs> but I really, it's one of those things that it's like, you know, have, you know, have you ever tasted chocolate cake? Well, no. Well, you're never going to know how great it is until you taste it. You know, it's kind of the same thing with Bethel. Like you're not going to know how either crazy or legit it is because there's, there's a lot of both there. There's a lot of both Um, really crazy, like nonsensical stuff that goes on. That's just trash. And then there's a lot of legit too. So did you feel a lot of pressure there to kind of be super spiritual or something like that? Um, less so there than at home. Okay. Probably Um, just because it's a different environment. People didn't know you or because of the area itself. Well, there was definitely there this huge, um, you know, there might be many people that disagree with me on this, but, uh, I'll, I'll just be real for a minute. Like there's, when you get to a point of Christian spirituality, um, which honestly, 
like even though it, it can be spiritual or whatever you want to call it um because because I look at it now and I'm like that that's not very spiritual if anything like it, yeah you're manifesting and you know speaking in tongues who knows how legit that is um but it's turning into religiousness that it's like if it doesn't look like this then it's not god you know if you're not manifesting shaking on the floor flopping around like a fish then it's not and it's like oh man like you know it's um yeah, we can get to this I, weird I just spot saw... of trying to manufacture spontaneity and it becomes yeah. just a another form of dead orthodoxy in a really weird way yeah. Yeah. And no, there's a lot of that there. There's, there's a lot of that there. And, you know, you just gotta, you gotta pick and choose. You gotta, you know, take the meat, spit out the bones and some people eat all of it. And some people, you know, spit out the meat and take the bones. Um, and so you, you gotta, you gotta pick and choose there. Just something that I, I noticed there that's happens a lot is because it's a really hyper spiritual environment is that whenever somebody gets some sort of promotion or that some, hierarchy of a person notices notices them or calls them out or anything there's this intense pride that comes into that person and you know myself not excluded from that like i had that happen and it's just like oh wow like i'm on top i'm a lot more spiritual than other people you know i had this experience or whatever or i met with this person and so you know God must love me more. Obviously, they're not going to say that out loud, but in their heart of hearts, it's kind of like that's kind of what you're thinking. No, you know, yeah, I totally um, understand that. Yeah, yeah. So there's just a, it's yeah. Not I don't I don't want to bash it. <laughs> I don't want to bash that school because I do have a lot of uh, friends that still go there, and I mean, I mean that the place that place regardless changed me, um, regardless of whatever it changed me. So I I can't regret it. Um, and I won't regret it because that's where I discovered acting and I still want to be an actor. I still, uh, awesome. I'm, I'm still, I still, still study film, still want to move out to Los Angeles and be a full-time actor. Um, and so I found that there and, uh, I was in a bunch of short films, plays and everything with the people that went to the school and they were super, super incredible, super awesome. So one of the things I've heard people suggest kind of for memories and times in our life like that, where it's kind of hard to digest it. Uh, one way that people have put words to that feeling is kind of to say, yeah, I want to transcend this experience, but I want to include it. So the idea of a kind of transcend and include, like my life is more and bigger than this now, but that still is definitely a part of me and I'm thankful for it. And I think that's yeah. a helpful way to not just be reactionary, to be, oh, I love this or, oh, I hate this, but it's there and I'm thankful for it, but I'm, that's not me anymore. Yeah. Yep. That's cool. Agreed. And so then what happened after that? What were kind of the finishing up ministry school? What was your plan at the time? And then what were some of the kind of initial doubts or questions that started to kind of make you question some of it? Yeah. So uh, after ministry school, I got involved with the ch with the church, uh, my dad's church here, Um you know, super into it, preached a couple of times, became, that's when I really went hard and became the, a worship leader, what was your and first a young sermon adults leader. And, oh man. I, I was one of those dudes that like my first sermon ever was before I went to ministry school. And, uh, it was about, uh, 
not dreaming in the night, but dreaming, like having a dream for your life. Um, and that was, and you know, I, I look back at that and it, it just wasn't how I do things. It wasn't, it wasn't me because I had it all typed out. I had it one, but I didn't move away from the pulpit. I basically just read my notes. Um, and then once I started reading, uh, more of the Bible, like hours and hours a day and prayer and all this kind of stuff. And I just had all these thoughts in me all the time. My, my dad would be like, you know, you're going to preach this day. Cool. What are you preaching on? And I'd be like, yeah, I don't really know. Um, and I would just get up there and I would talk for two hours about a whole bunch of stuff. And so, you know, some of those, some of those talks were about, uh, the grace of God. Some of those, uh, talks were about, uh, humility. Uh, some of those talks were about, um, what, what I felt the true calling of a fivefold minister was. I mean, I had all of these thoughts that were just constant. And that's, that's kind of how I speak best. And even my YouTube videos, like I don't, it, unless it's like the series I'm doing on truth, where it's very philosophical, very objective fact and stuff like that. If it's all of my thought and my subjective thinking or my philosophies, I don't write anything out. I just have, and it's just how my brain works. I just have a thought and then I can expound upon that thought um, just as I'm talking. And so that's what I did when I preached. Um, it wasn't really any one particular thing, um, but it was just like, okay, I think this is what I'm going to talk about. So I'm just going to walk up and talk about, start talking and I'll see what comes out. And see, there's something you know, really powerful about you know, that. People overcomplicate the process of public speaking, but the way you just described it there was, I'm going to go talk to these people about this thing that I have been thinking about. And when we try to talk about stuff that we don't actually know, that's when it becomes so hard and we have to try to over-prepare in all of this. And, you know, I definitely lean more toward the side of needing preparation for when I'm going to speak, even if I do know it really well. But overall, I think if we know more and prepare less, we'd be better. Yeah. Now, I mean, I started out that way of always having to prepare and it was good for me to do that. Um, but then I eventually got a point where uh, my notes got less and less and less yeah. um, until uh, I got to a point where I was like, yeah, I don't need these. The, until I got to a point of was, I, was, I was like, these notes are actually holding me back. <laughs> and so, so I actually mentioned I was this like, on I'm my last notes away. podcast episode on here. But um, I once preached from 26 pages of notes. It was wow, a bit long. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's a lot of notes. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, I, I totally interrupted and got off on that sermon and speaking tangent. No, you're but, good. So um, you went back to your church and then what kind of happened? Um, so yeah, I just got super involved. Um, and then um, it was it. I think I've mentioned this on my channel. I know I've mentioned it on my live streams because a lot of people have this question. Like what was the thought? What was the thing that, uh, you know, turned you and it literally like some people have that deconstructing process me it was not that way it wasn't a process it it happened in a half a second wow and it took me the next two years to figure out what happened um and i mean it was just it was the most intense thing i've ever gone through been through um and i mean i just hope that it doesn't happen again because I mean, it's, it's terrifying when you're questioning your own sanity and whether you're yeah. real or not. Um, so that was the first thing that so, kind of, it was just suddenly doubting absolutely everything. So it wasn't necessarily a doubting God thing. It was a doubting absolutely everything you knew type of thing. 
or am I off? Yeah. On that? Well, it started. It was. It was just a. Tr- no, you're not off, but you're not. On. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 kind of like it's kind of like it was just a a like how do I put it like you know if if you got this whole balloon above your head that is held together by a uh you know like this needle sewed it together right and then there's this thread that's just hanging there and then you pull the thread and the entire thing comes undone and you get dumped on that's that's what happened i pulled the thread and it was like that thread was just like this single thought and i was like wait a minute i haven't thought about this before and then i just pull it and bam it just it just happened um it it kind of felt like there's a there was a really really dark closet in my mind where i was shoving all these things uh my entire life things that i didn't want to face things that i didn't you know like oh yeah i know i have pride but i don't want to deal with it i know i'm a hypocrite in these ways but i don't want to deal with it i know i'm this i know i'm that and then it was like one day when that all happened somebody was like I'm going to shine a floodlight on all of this so that you have no choice but to see um, who you really are. And uh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And then um, it, it was just one thought after after another that led to, I don't think God's real. Do you? Yeah. Well, I have a funny question and then a serious question. The first yeah. one is, have you seen Doctor Who? I have not, no. Okay, there's a... Um, you know, it's a science fiction and there's kind of a technology in there called a perception filter. And yeah. so it doesn't make things invisible, but what the way they describe it in the show is that it does something to your mind where it almost forces you to not look at it. Like it, it influences you to ignore it. So if you actually yeah. try to look at it, you could, if you know that there's this thing hiding in plain sight, you could look at it, but people mm-hmm. just walk by it every single day. Yeah. And that's how I feel about some of these thoughts that we kind of hide from ourselves so we put them in the closet we put the perception filter on it we don't give ourselves access we don't give ourselves permission to think a certain train of thought and then sometimes on accident we start to go in to that closet from the other side or from a different door and it's like oh shoot i'm not supposed to be here yep. uh, so that my more serious question was do you remember what that first thread was or what that kind of chain like so um i'm not gonna well i'm not gonna go into it uh so i think i think i just kind of want to leave it at you know what i've said so far because i'm eventually going to um make a make a video about it at some point the full story um but i yeah i I, it's not that i don't want to go there it's just something that I still, I mean, it's been like three years and I'm like, I don't know if it's quite time to really share it because, and the reason being is because I still, from all of the thoughts that I had, from all the things that I took, that, that took place, um, I still feel like I'm asking myself all of those questions and I still feel like I'm actually very much still in that place that I was in and I mean, it is super dark place and, you know, people that don't even know who I am have come up to my friends and family being like, I'm, I'm worried about him. And they're like, what do you even know who he is? And no, but he's just in such a dark place. 
and I'm like, you know, that's, that's fine. I, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me. It, it doesn't matter what they think or, you know, um, but it's like, I, I feel that in some sort of way, I want to have something to be able to say that there's been some redemption in some way. Um, and so if I'm honest, I just don't feel like I have that grasp on it yet. So it's not that I don't want to share it or don't want to share the full story. It's just that, um, you know, if I say it, I just don't, it, it, I, I would feel like I'm just opening a very dark place and then it would just be left there. Like, it's like, okay, no hope. This is, <laughs> this is where I'm at. And I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do that because I'm all about, um, you know, it for, for people who are also in the same place as me, I definitely, uh, want to have hope for them. And, uh, if, if an answer presents itself, then I want to be able to have it. So it's not, it's, it's not that I'm afraid to share it. It's not that any of that, it's just, um, I, I, I feel like when I do share it, I want to have some sort of sense of redemption there <laughs> or that some, yeah, yeah. And so I just don't feel like, uh, I have that quite yet, but from what I, from what I have said, I mean, it was happened in a split second, nervous breakdown and, uh, the string of thoughts just went, just went wild and crazy. And, uh, I, I remember I, I sat in my computer chair, just sitting there for like three hours. And it was just like, my, my brain felt like it was unfolding. And I was like, Oh man, what is going on? It's crazy. Crazy. Man, if it is any consolation to you or to anyone listening, like I can't say that my experience was nearly as intense, but when I went to, um, I went to a college in Minneapolis and the intent when I went there was to study, to be a pastor. So it was a Christian mm -hmm. school. And during my very first semester, you know, it was interesting. There's some slight parallels here, like with going into somewhere like Bethel, where it was just a totally different environment. And there was so much more um, intentional reference to God and spiritual things. And, Hey, let's pray about this type of just environment. And it was an amazing experience for me kind of going into that. And then literally halfway through my first semester there, I started, I think what happened was I was thinking, okay, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to becoming a pastor and to teaching these things. And I think the weight of that finally hit me of, I never really examined my own thought process about why I held these things to be true for most of my life. And so it was yeah. just sort of a downward spiral. And I literally got to that point where, um, I hadn't read Descartes at the time, but I, I was questioning whether anything external of my mind was real. And yeah. it was just an awful, awful place. And I remember feeling like a total hypocrite. I remember one night in particular, um, I was outside and I had just gone for a run and a friend of mine called me who had some just really difficult things going on in her life. And I just gave her some counsel and she was like, oh, thank you so much for talking to me. Can you pray for me? So I prayed for her over the phone. And I then, and she was like, you're such a, like, you're going to be a great pastor one day. And just like all mm. this pepping me up about like how, what a spiritual dude I was. And then I remember yeah. going back inside and lying down on the ground. Everyone else was asleep and all of my roommates and just lying, literally face down on the ground and just crying my eyes out because I had no clue what was true anymore and yeah, yeah. feeling like such a disconnect because it felt so life-giving to be able to help someone spiritually 
But then I was like, but was I, or was I just telling her lies? And it was such a, such a hard place to be. And yeah, thankfully for me, I do feel like I've come out of that. And so I want to hopefully give that as some hope to you, you know, everybody's story and timeline looks different, but I think you will come Mm -hmm. out of it. And I don't know what side you'll come out on. I don't know what it will look like. Like you're not me. So I'm not expect, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to keep pursuing truth but I think you will find redemption of one sort or another on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that actually reminds me of what what you just said. It reminds me of two weeks after I had that actually, no, it was like, yeah, it was, it was probably, um, no, it was a month, month after I had that intense mental breakdown and I was still, I was still pretty much in it. Um, that somebody who, I visited their church with my parents and they really liked uh, me or just I think I may have like prophesied over one of them or prayed for one of them or something. And uh, they just really liked everything that I had to say. And so they invited me to speak at their church. And then I had and then I, I said yes. And then I had that mental breakdown and I didn't believe in God, but yet I committed to this thing that I would speak in front of their entire church mm. and lead, lead them in worship. And that was like, and I, and I didn't even know how to cope with where I was at. And so I was like, you know, maybe this is just a test. Maybe this is all going to end in a couple of weeks. I didn't know. And so that, that was like one of the hardest things that I ever did, that it was like, I spoke in front of a church of people about a God that I was like, I don't think he's real. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, it just the biggest, the biggest, most hypocritical thing I've ever done. And uh, yeah, man, it was, I, so I feel you on that. I definitely feel you on that whole thing that you, you went through. Yeah. In Psalm 73, you know, Asaph was the name of one of the Israelite um, song leaders for when Israel was a nation in the old Testament. And um, he wrote this Psalm basically saying that like he went through this time of basically doubting the goodness of God. He said that he looked at the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous and was wondering whether serving God was worth it. He even says in Psalm 73 that he felt that it had all been in vain and that he had kept his hands pure, He that it had all been in vain that he had been serving God. And then he acknowledges that if I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed the children of God. And so he was wrestling as a leader of, I don't know if I believe these things. And it was just so interesting because I found that um, shortly after kind of me going through that myself and realizing, wait, this is actually even in the Bible. And then realizing the book of Job, you know, it's all questions. It's all questions. And I don't know if there is an answer in there. And then there's a book of Ecclesiastes wondering about the purpose of life and whether there is a point because everything just seems to be the same generation after generation and realizing that there's kind of someone called it a counter testimony. So there's like the main message of the Bible. There's almost like this count, this um, opposing voice in some of the prophets and in some of the poetry that's saying, but what about this? But what about this? That's raising these really hard questions and yeah, it's it's part of life. It's part of theology being in progress. It's part of humanity being in progress. And I mean, you know, I haven't read the Bible in a while, but one of my heroes in the Bible is Thomas. Yeah, <laughs> it's just you know, I I think reading that 
reading about Thomas through a different lens uh, in John and what what he was saying and what Jesus said before that and just like putting the pieces together. I, you know, I look at Thomas completely different and I'm just like, man, that, that dude was so real and just like, you know, okay, yeah, I realize 11 of you or 10 of you saw God, but I didn't. And I'm not going to believe you until I see it myself. Yeah. I'm like, man, that, you know, that's, that's just so real. And people, you know, are like, you know, he, he was doubting God. He was doubting. And I look at that and I'm just like, no, I don't think he was doubting God at all. I think he was, I think he was the purest of heart. You know, I mean, Jesus, Jesus said those, um, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And I'm like, well, Thomas, he definitely saw God. I think that, so through that story, I think Thomas is an example of what actual purity looks like. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think purity has to look, uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I, especially just going through school and most of my life, I thought of like purity as something that it was like without blemish, like totally and completely clean. Yeah. But now I think, but now I think purity since reading that story and since just living a bit more and gaining a bit more understanding, um, I think it's a lot more what, what purity looks like is being absolutely real with where you're at, uh, in the, in that present moment. And, you know, I could be wrong about that, but I've had that thought for, for years. Yeah, I mean, and, that lines uh, up with things I've studied about it. I've read that the meaning in the new, in the Greek for the word pure literally means unmixed. So it's the idea of it just being, yep complete and real and focused and you know kierkegaard said that purity of heart is to will one thing and is to like really truly from your gut from your soul mean it yeah yeah no i 100 percent agree with that i think i think so i mean i totally think purity looks uh completely different than what uh traditional religious christians uh especially in the charismatic spirit-filled movement think about what purity is yeah there's a whole other topic we could talk about about things that i disagree on with a lot of more conservative churches about what modesty looks like and what purity looks like so oh yeah dude we could we could go on and on about that yeah it's it's interesting (sighs) so i wanted to do a few rapid fire questions and uh a preface to this would you I watched your video, but I'm still a little confused on your stance. Would you consider yourself mm-hmm. an agnostic at this point? Uh, reluctantly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I say I say reluctantly just because agnostic to me – I mean there's nothing wrong – and you know, I talked about this in my video. There's, there's nothing – I don't really have a problem with agnostics that um, are like – I'm agnostic because I believe that God is an infinite God and we are finite. Uh, human beings. And so we can't ever understand what God is. And so um, I do think that there is a God. I just don't think that we're able to understand him. And so with that frame of thinking, I'm like, you know what? I respect that. Like, because even if you tried to, which, you know, ironically, most of those people still continue to search things out. Um, But the agnosticism that I'm like, you know, this is lazy and there's no point to it. It's just the agnosticism that's like, yeah, I think there's something more, but do I want to, you know, research it or do anything about it? No, not really. I just, you know, there's probably something more, but I don't want to do anything about it. So, I mean, for me, I guess the type of agnosticism um, that I fall into is like, so I don't, so I don't, I know I don't believe in God in my heart of hearts. Um, and so therefore, you know, 
I could be called an atheist. Um, but at the same time, there's things that I see that go on. And as well as like, also deep inside me, I'm like, I want this to be true. I want this to be real. Um, and I do think it is, but just because I think it doesn't make it truth. So, you know, how do I navigate yeah. that? And so it, it's, it's agnosticism, but it's also like this skepticism. Like, you know, I was on this other podcast, uh, mindful skeptic and, uh, he, you know, I just said, just call me a skeptic and, you know, cause he said atheist and I was like, no, I'm not an atheist. I'm not really agnostic. So yeah. And that, that gets into the misfit thing as well. I don't even know where I fit in there, no. but, um, yeah, so t technically it's agnosticism, but I don't think it's the agnosticism Maybe it is, but I don't think it's the agnosticism that it's it by definition agnosticism, if that makes sense. I think sense. I get that, yeah. And so then I'll use the term uh, skeptic here. So I want you to fill in the blanks. Right. So I have like four of these. So I'm a skeptic and I think Christians are blank. You know, the first word that comes to mind, and I feel like I'm going to have to do some explaining with this, um, are fake. and. I say that because, okay, that sounds harsh. Like I get that that sounds harsh, but not to say that there aren't legit and authentic people who are Christians, you know, um, not to say that at all because there are, um, there absolutely are. But I think that Christians oftentimes a big majority wear a mask um, whether that be a mask of religion or a mask of joy or a mask of having it all together or a mask of false humility, um, a mask of, I mean, you name it. Like there's so many Christians that I've seen throughout my life that I'm just like, it's, it's a shame that you don't see it, but you're wearing a mask like in, in your life could be changed if you would just decide to be real with yourself. And I think, I think the fakeness isn't, it's definitely not on purpose. Um, the, the fakeness that I see, but it's this fakeness that it's almost like a fear to actually look at what's real in front of them. Um, that, you know, like I, I've talked to some people where it's like in conversations, I can tell, I'm like, you're, you're seriously doubting things right now. And like, I wouldn't even say that you believe, but they're like, no, 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 I do. I'm, I believe I'm, I'm good. I got it. And I'm like, man, like, what, what are you fighting for? Like, you know, I, so it's not, it's not with everybody. Um, it's definitely not with everybody. And I don't want to paint that, that picture of me saying that as I think that's the majority of people. Cause I don't, yeah. Um, or the no, majority I, I think of Christians, I, get what you're I saying. say. And I think one of the reasons why I do want to have non-Christians on this podcast from time to time is because I think that you can see things like that better than we can see it ourselves sometimes. And I know that hypocrisy and wearing a mask and all those things can be such a hindrance. Um, and I think, I think that for a lot of people, it's rooted in their view of God where God isn't someone who just unconditionally loves them and whose love is fully demonstrated through the cross of Christ. Their view of God is someone who is checking the mental contents of their thoughts. And if their thoughts don't line up perfectly to what's laid out in scripture, then they're going to be punished eternally in hell. And those are two totally different pictures. Mm. And so I think that's where some of that nervousness yeah. can come from, where it's like they don't fully believe that God's love 
is as great as he says it is. And so they are constantly trying to please him instead of knowing that everything was already finished at the cross. So it's, I think a lot of that can be traced back to that faulty view of God, but I think that's totally true. Yeah. So here's the second one. So I'm a skeptic and I think the Bible is blank. Hmm. That's a good one. Um, not inerrant, you know, obviously it's a really conservative traditional view that there is a, the word of God is without error. It is inerrant. And, um, I would say that is absolutely not the case. Uh, the people that wrote it are, you know, no different genetically and biologically than you and I. And, um, you know, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of Christianese spiritual arguments that can be made about that. Well, you know, God chose this person, this person had this, this person had that. I'm like, yes and no. Um, theologically speaking, yes and no. Um, but there's a lot, like, I, I mean, it's, it's really like, I mean, I've, and just cause I, I've heard a lot of people say that the, the Bible is inerrant and it's, it's perfect the way it is. And I'm like, um, not really, because I mean, if you're trying to, you know, get, read a book that's all sunshine and rainbows without sin and, um, totally, you know, um, everything that it says is good and great, then it's like, you should probably read another book. Um, cause there's a lot of nasty things that go on yeah. in there. Something really interesting to me is some Christians, it's kind of the question of, am I going to approach this deductively based off my assumptions about God? Or am I going to approach it inductively based off of what this book actually is? Because what the Bible claims for itself yeah. is that it's from God, but it never spells out a doctrine of inerrancy in it to the level of like, you know, there's a Chicago statement of inerrancy and stuff like that. Um, and it's something I'm still wrestling through. I don't know where I'm going to land, but it's been super interesting to think like, let's let God give us the type of book that he wants to, and let's not predetermine before we even read it, what it has to be. Cause that's how I feel like a lot of the debate goes from the inerrantist side that says, no, God is truth and this is his book. So it has to all be hundred percent true. And it's like, why does God have to do that? Why can't God allow us to, write his book for him in a human way that shows all the scars along the way. Like that's something that a few authors like Mm. Greg Boyd and Pete ends I've read recently. And it's been fascinating to think through, like we're not limited to one view of the Bible. Yeah. And I think uh, something to add to that is whether or not Christians view the Bible as their foundation or their ceiling. Cause really the Christians that view the found the, the Bible as their ceiling, um, like any, anything outside of the Bible is absolutely terrible. You know, it's, it's dangerous sinful. And, and it's like, if it's not yeah, dangerous, if it's not in the Bible, don't go there. You know, you're using, you're using the Bible as your ceiling, but if you use the Bible as your foundation and, uh, you know, it's, it's where you, where you start, then that's where I've seen more legit, less fake uh lifestyle christianity people uh living from when when they don't look at the word of god as uh 
yeah, a ceiling that is like, well, where is it in the Bible? Of, and, uh, you know, of course, theologically speaking, if you're going to, you know, believe in God and use the Bible to back things up, then obviously when teaching these kind of things and especially apologetics and all that, like, yeah, you do want to have some backup verses in yeah. the Bible. Um, but there's also, um, yeah, just in life, man. I mean, and, and it, it gets into a lot of the, uh, like I've had a plenty of talks with my parents just about the things that I'm doing and some of the things that I've talked about on my channel, like with, uh, meditation and, uh, lucid dreaming, you know, astral projection and, and all those kind of things. Like, you know, they, I've had a lot of people worried, about, worried about me and I'm like, all right, like what's, what's, what's the actual deal? What are you, what are you really worried about here? Um, so it's, it's led into some interesting conversations. Uh, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Um, so, so related to that, mm -hmm. I'm an, I'm a skeptic and I practice spirituality by blank. Um, yeah, I would say those three things, uh, meditation, uh, lucid dreaming and astral project. And I, I've just to be clear, uh, not that I'm aware of, um, and I'll talk about this more on my YouTube channel when I make a series on it. Um, but I think I've maybe astral projected a more in the past, um, but I'm not totally sure. What is that? Um, lucid dream, astral projection. Is, so it's basically an, a voluntary out of body experience. Does it involve um, drugs? Completely. No, <laughs> completely, completely 100% natural. Um, and you can call it, I mean, there are plenty of religions or, you know, even occults or just a, a lot of people call it astral projection. Um, this guy that I'm reading his trilogy on out of body experiences, he just calls it the second state. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it's basically you willingly are leaving your body. Now there's plenty, plenty of debate online as uh as to whether or not it's actually real whether or not it's just a lucid dream or um if you know you're actually leaving your body and going into another dimension or another world now for me the reason why I, I i do this is because i mean i made a video about it on my channel um saying i i don't want to like worship believe in a god that i i can't experience or that's not something experiential because I feel like that's really where I was. Um, that when I really look at it from an objective point of view, I was I was worshiping a religious philosophy. Um, I, I, there wasn't there wasn't much of a, a tangible relationship there. Um, and so I see these things just from people that have studied these things for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and even when you look at the uh, mystics. The Christian mystics, they learned uh, these spiritual practices from these Hindus, these Indians, these Buddhist monks that lived in the hills. They learned how to practice these things, and then they applied it to Christianity. And um, I look at that, and I just look at a number of verses in the Bible. Like, I'm like, all right, so, you know, because I still got people telling me, you know, oh, yeah, I know you don't believe in God, but you still got God all over you, and he's still inside of you, and he speaks through you. And I'm like, okay, well, if that's the truth— that he does live inside me, then if I can get into my own head and my subconscious, um, then let's talk and see what's up. And so that's kind of one of the things um, in lucid dreaming is that you um, can 
it, it's basically getting into touch with your own mind. Like when you're when you're in a lucid dream, uh, you can actually talk to your dream and summon up uh, either either memories or places or, or things or people, um, and your your conscious will talk back to you. Um, and so I'm like, you know, well, if that's the case, then, uh, well, let's go for it. Let's, let's do it. Let's find out what this is. Um, because the reality is, you know, a lot of these things I've looked up and studied on, but every single one of them, every single one of them, every single spiritual practice that I've researched, um, outside of Christianity says, if you don't believe anything that you've read or researched, try it for yourself and get back to us. And that is something that I, so appreciate that I'm like, all right, like that's, that's kind of for me. That's when I know if something's legit or not. Like, it's like, yeah, I can talk about it all day, but what's really going to sell you on it is when you do it yourself. Um, and so, yeah, I've, yeah, man, I've been meditation. uh, I, I practice that every single day and it's changed my life in so many ways. Not just, I mean, not just anything that has to do with spirituality, but like physically, I wouldn't say um, so. I wouldn't say that I practice uh, astral projection. I'm just learning about it now, and kind of like a thing to help you learn how to do it is lucid dreaming. So I'm starting with lucid dreaming, and then probably going to move more towards that second state, out of body experiences, and stuff like that. Um, But meditation has I, I do that every single day, and it has completely changed my life for the better. That's super interesting to me because I've. You know, it raises the big issue of like, how do we arrive at truth, especially when it's kind of the big picture, most important fundamental issues of life. Um, And I'm in a number of different circles of Christians, and a lot of them are into apologetics, trying to understand kind of rationally why we can know God exists and Jesus rose from the dead and things like that, trying to defend the faith. And there's kind of a mixed perspective about the role of reason and experience in forming your view of the world some will say that you know experience is we can convince ourselves that we've experienced anything and so we shouldn't rely on experience we should just rely on reason and just allow the cold hard facts of life to determine how we view reality and there's almost like this virtuous stoicism within it and there's part of it that's good but then there are other people who are like no if god is real i don't want to only know him as a conclusion to a syllogism i need to experience him personally yeah. and in my mind yeah, that's where okay. i fall see in my mind the perspective i try to take in all of life is i think that on the ground of reason or experience we have permission to believe anything that's shown true either way. But like the ideal is for them to both line up. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I know that's not that yeah, different from I, I, what I, you believe, but it's, it's just an interesting thing to think of. Cause I think we all tend to favor one side over the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, yeah, there's definitely, um, you gotta see the thing with me is, um, I'm a realist, you know, there's, there's anti-realism, which says that, um, our subject, the only reason reality exists is because we experience it. Um, and so if, if we never, if we weren't experiencing reality, then reality wouldn't exist. So therefore what we experience is the truth. 
and you know i'm not i'm not that i don't think that i that's a very anti-realist way of thinking i'm definitely a realist where it's like you know there is objective reality outside of our subjective way of thinking um and so i i always want to no matter what i and i haven't had a crazy uh I mean, I've had weird experiences, but I haven't had any like crazy, you know, like, okay, that just happened. So is there any scientific backing for that or anything like that? You know, I haven't been to that point, um, but I do like you're right in, in the sense that we can convince ourselves of a lot of different things. Um, but I mean, man, and it, it gets into ethics. It gets into character because I, I mean, and I, and I think that's the, that's the benefit of looking at science and reason is because it's, it, it is done by humans, but when you've followed accurately the scientific method and you have objective results that have come from multiple teams of scientists and professionals in their fields and they come up with the same results, then it, it almost takes the human side out of it and you can see objective reality for what it really is. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was done yeah. by humans. And like those <laughs> and so, humans are still operating out of a philosophical perspective that can't be scientifically shown to be true. That might be affecting exactly. their scientific rigor. Yep. Exactly. And that's, I, uh, John, you know, I mentioned him at the beginning of the podcast, this guy, uh, John Caputa, um, is he, um, in that, in that lecture I watched on the theology of the unconditional, he talks about a very postmodern way of thinking to where everything is either subjective or objective, uh, public or private. Um, you know, there's two, there's two extremes that we have in our, you know, postmodern way of thinking. Um, but then there's a number of things that don't fall that don't fit in either category. And it's like, what do we do with that? Like art, you know, is that subjective or objective? Is that public or private? Is that, uh, and he, he goes through, he lists other things that are just like total opposites from each other. And then he goes even further and then he starts talking about science. And he says, you know, we look at science as something objective, but what about the scientist? Like even Einstein, you know, he he had a dream of what would it be like to ride on yep. a beam of light? And it was that and it was that train of thought that led him to um, you know, his theories of relativity that have proved objective through the last hundred years. And so it's like it does it's it, there's there's a middle ground there somewhere it, it starts but it does start off a subject it does start off subjectively and then it makes its way objectively uh into objective yeah, reality it's like there's well. a dialectic of source between the subjective and the objective and truth is found in going back and forth kind of cross-referencing um which i know you've mentioned on your show the on your youtube channel um pragmatism and how like that has to be an element also like it does this is it actually livable oh yeah and if it's not livable that's where oh, something yeah. i think that some christians you know they they going back to the idea of like kind of fake to an extent i think that they believe things that they don't yeah. actually live that they say that they believe things that they can't actually 
believe consistently. They have to block them out in a way. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think actually prag- pragmatically, like, is this a part of your life is a huge question as well. Yeah, 100%. So agree. what are you studying these days? What are you currently thinking about? Um, and also, I'm curious, what books in apologetics and studying questioning like the existence of God, p- arguments in favor, arguments against, uh, have you read at this point? So when I uh, was researching all of the different arguments for the existence of God, specifically uh, philosophically, um, I have not researched many, even though I've looked into them. I like for me, when I say research, I mean like putting in like 40, 50 hours of like hardcore trying to find peer reviewed evidence uh, through a number of different websites and like knowing for sure what I think about this. So I can't say that I've done that for um, like historical apologetics for uh, the biblical context, even though I have looked into it some, um, but I have studied a lot of the arguments uh, surrounding whether or not God exists from philosophy. Um, And so when I was doing that, um, I didn't have a lot, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money. And so I read a lot of things online. I mean, I, I just, I have like all of them saved in my bookmarks, whether it was from the, uh, internet encyclopedia of philosophy to, uh, Plato's, uh, encyclopedia of philosophy online to, I mean, just looking up, finding all these different articles that it was like, okay, this says the same thing. This says the same thing, but this says something different. So, what what are the actual facts? And you know, who's writing this? And just making sure I have the facts straight. Um, so, really, in a lot of the studying that I, a lot of the studying that I do on my channel um, is from articles and blogs online from people who you know either have PhDs or majors in philosophy. Um, really the books of philosophy that I've bought and read are, uh, Plato's, Plato's books, uh, some of, some of Plato's books, you know, Rene Descartes, um, you know, and I flipped through a couple others that I, that I bought from really a thrift shop for a couple bucks, but most of the stuff was online. Would you, I'm curious, have you, did you stumble upon any of, um, I'm going to name three people. William Lane Craig, Edward Fazer, or Josh Rasmussen? Uh, William Lane Craig, yes. Uh, I'm not sure about the other okay. two. It's I can't. Yeah, I can't. I've pro- I probably have, but I remember specifically William William Lane. What was Craig. your if you remember? What was your impression of him? I don't. I don't remember. It was. It was so long ago. Okay. Yeah, that's totally fine. I, I was curious, especially with Craig, because he was kind of the first person that I really dove into um, who was a Christian who was like teaching things philosophically. And it was a, just a huge breath of fresh air for me. So, yeah, cool. But yeah, would you mind if I sent you I'd be willing to pay for the cost of it and the shipping and everything. I send you a book by Josh Rasmussen that just came out called How Reason Can Lead to God. Yeah, sure. Go for it. OK, cool. That'd be awesome. Um, what are you, so then that was one part of the question. What else are you studying now? What can people be kind of looking forward to seeing on your channel in the future? Yeah. So, uh, I'm getting through this series of truth. Uh, and then after that, it's going to be, be a lot of subjective thoughts from me. 
um, about many other things that I've uh, been looking at, just like different things here and there, more motivational stuff. But what I really want to dive into um, is this really what I'm going to dive into more. And this is the reason why I'm doing this series on truth is looking at the like hardcore objective as much as philosophy can be objective, but the, the Phil, the philosophy that we have through the history of well-known philosophers looking at the truth and what they see as truth and things like that and really taking that and running with it in my own mind because there's a lot of things that I thought I was going to see in all of my research about the about truth and how we get to truth but strangely enough you know from what me and you have been talking about the difference between subjective truth and objective truth and how truth starts as something subjective and it moves into the objective once it's experienced by a number of other people it's i didn't find any of that and so i'm like wow you know i mean obviously this is something that people talk about and that people think about um and so i just know that i have a lot of my own thoughts on that and um a series that people have been wanting for the longest time that I say that I'm going to do, and I already have it all researched out, is uh, the free will versus determinism. Um, and I am 100% advocate that we have free will. Good, good. Um, but there are a lot, there are a lot of people that follow my channel that say they do not believe in free will and they're determinists. And so um, I'm I'm ready to shut down all of those arguments <laughs> to say. Yeah, to say the least. Do you have a – I mean I don't want you to spoil anything but maybe a teaser. Do you have like a certain perspective on it? Because this is actually one of the few areas outside of the philosophy of religion that I've actually studied in a decent amount of detail. Is there a certain flavor of uh, free will that you kind of embrace or adopt or a certain philosopher that you've read who you just totally are on board with how he or she articulates it? Not particularly. I mean, I I personally ascribe to uh, compatibilism, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, is that there are things in the world that are determined. Um, like I would say that's objective reality. Um, but there are also things that we have free will over, uh, which, you know, we 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 can decide more than we even realize. Uh, there's There's things that we are not even consciously aware of, of how much control we actually have until we recognize it and then we can do something about it. Um, the, the little teaser that I'm going to, obviously I'm going to talk more about it in the series is that something that I've seen, uh, on a lot of, uh, determinists, uh, which is, you know, mostly, mostly atheistic, um, people, uh, that it, on their videos that they've made on the YouTube channel, they all talk about the Libet experiment. Uh, and that, you know, the Libet experiment is proof that there is no free will. And I just say that, uh, that's absolutely trash. <laughs> that is, that's completely wrong. When you look at the Libet experiment and what it is, I mean, he, he hooks EKGs up to these people. And then he says, uh, uh you know, just shortening it for the people who are listening to this, who don't know what it is, hook hooks these, uh, EMGs, EKGs, I forget which one it is, uh, two, or maybe it's an EEG. I some, don't know. Some but form hooks, of combination of letters. Some, some yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, hooks that uh, 
up to their head and he tells them, all right, there's going to be these things that appear on the computer and uh, you press the button when you see them. And then you also, you know, when you see it, just whenever you feel like it, press the button and uh, then just do that. And so they do this and then they see that there is brain activity. It's something like a half a second. Uh, it's, it's in between like a quarter of a second to like somewhere between four seconds that the brain activity starts prior to them even re realizing or recognizing that they're about to hit the button. And they're supposed to, they're supposed to write down like, this is when I decided in my head that I'm going to push the button. Um, and so they record, this is when I decided to, and obviously the computer records when they actually push the button. And so then the, the scanner says um, that, you know, the brain activity picked up anywhere from a quarter of a second to uh, four seconds uh, before, and I say four seconds before, there's been different types of the Labette experiment done more recently in modern times that have um, had that result of somewhere between a quarter of a second to four seconds uh, prior, like brain activity prior to when they were even, before they were even aware that they were about to press the button or decide to press the button. And so determinists look at this and they're like, see, our brain knows before we do exactly what's going to happen. Everything is determined and this and that. Now, there's a lot of difficult difficulties inside this experiment that I'll get into. And even Labette said himself, he said, this is not proof that th that we do not have free will. This is not proof of that, which obviously all determinists don't mention that. They don't say that. Um, but Labette said, this is not evidence and proof that free will does not exist. The thing that I noticed when I kept on thinking about this is that they actually, you know, they, they say, press the button when it, whenever you feel like it. But they don't say, it's your choice whether or not to press the button. So before they even went into the experiment, they were already determined to do something. Like the experiment, I think for the experiment to be totally accurate is for them to be able to go into a room and for them to say, you can press the button or you can just sit there for 10 yeah. minutes and let them choose and then see what the brain scanners say. But if you're going to tell them to press the button on their own time, but press the button, then you're already setting in motion a deterministic thing that it's like they're going to do this. This is going to happen. And so and that's just, that's one point, but there are many other points and many other scientists that have totally debunked that experiment and saying this is not evidence that, you know, free will is not a thing. And, you know, I mean, it gets into so much stuff like neuroplasticity and um just the even modern science coming out on consciousness and things of that nature. Like the, within the last 10 years, there's so much evidence that completely outweighs the deterministic, uh, any deterministic science that says that, you know, there's no free will and everything is determined. So going to talk more about it. Yeah, in the series, I'll look but, forward to yeah. watching that because it's one of those things where I don't know how true this is. But it seems to me that if you don't believe in free will, if you believe in determinism, well, there are two big issues I have with it. 
on just the human level, it really seems like if we don't have free will, then it's really easy to shirk responsibility. It's really easy to say, I'm not responsible for the bad things that I do, and I'm not even really that capable of doing good in this world. I just am. And there's no possibility to rise to something better or to sink down into something worse. You're just kind of stuck being who you are. And then especially as someone who believes yeah. in God and seeing evil in the world, if determinism were true, then all of that would trace back directly to the activity of God and not to the action or inaction of humanity. And that's just something that I cannot accept. Like in my mind, that's less probable than there being no God. Like determinism makes way more sense on atheism yeah. than on theism. And so for me, especially as a Christian, I'm a little yeah. bit invested in this debate where I just can't make sense of a world with God and no free will and evil. Like those three just can't fit together. Yeah. I mean, even regardless of God or no God, from the first thing that you said um, regarding free will, uh, I forget exactly what you what you said, but when – and I made – I talked about it some on my channel, but you really, honestly, you cannot have true love yeah. without free will. It just doesn't work. And so if you're in a very deterministic mindset, I really don't think it's possible to know what true love is. Um, you know, where does, where does sacrifice come into play in that? Because obviously if you're just following human instinct and everything is determined, well, you're either going to have fight or flight. And that is going to be um, for yourself and survival because that's at, at the heart of it all. We, Christ, I mean, uh, you know, humans just want to survive. Uh, and so if, if everything is just based on instinct and what they want to do and, you know, there, there will be talk about biology and chemicals and, you know, like mothers and how they react to their kids and things like that where I'm like, yeah, okay. But when you – make a decision to commit to someone absolutely regardless of the way that you are feeling and uh, that you're thinking and you're in it for the long haul. Like what, you know, what happens when it gets hard? Like obviously every part of you is going to want to leave and your human instinct and everything in you is going to be like, you know, no, I don't want to be a part of this. I, you know, all that. And I mean, really that's what you see a lot in uh the people that uh you know are deterministic yep. uh determinists that you know it's it's just like you know what this is the way things is this is the way my body feels this is the way things are going uh and so yeah that, that's just what it is and i'm like that's not that's not what love yeah. is <laughs> you know that's that's just the way i see it and that's you know i got that from a couple of my mentors that through conversations that we've had about uh, love and what true love is. And I, I mean, I'm pretty firm in that, that it's like, yeah, without free will love, you know, truly uh, is just not a, it's just not a thing yeah. without free will. Especially in the beginning, you know, I think that in a sense um, as if you kind of commit to someone in love, you know, the Bible uses the term of like a covenant. And I think that a lot of people throw that out there without knowing what it means, but basically the idea of, just full-on commitment to love someone. And um, as yeah. you go into that, like as like with a married couple, they've been married for 50 years. In a way, 
some of their free will has been removed from the factor as a factor it's like they're just going to keep loving them because it's been so ingrained into them by choice after choice after choice that it's become a part of who they are but especially in the beginning that choice is a lot more free but it's free in a different way later also but it's more of a freedom of that's like built into your character now but early on it's almost like part of the joy of the early stages of dating for any couple is there's almost a level of arbitrariness to it like why is this happening what are we doing and it's mm. exciting and we just totally lose no. all of that if determinism is true good stuff so yeah any, any last thoughts as we're wrapping this up we've been talking for about an hour and a half now any final thoughts that you would like to leave with my audience or even just telling people where they can go to find more of your work uh you know the phil the philosophical misfit youtube channel uh you know itunes spotify nation haven uh is my h-a-v-e-n nation haven uh is my music pseudo name um and uh you know i i you know, I I left off um, the last podcast that I was on where I just said, uh, you know, question question everything, and you know I I want to say that again, question everything, um, but just in the recent things that I've studied and learned, still question everything, um. But question question it to a point of when you find when you find something in your in your in yourself that resonates so hard, then there's there's no longer a need to to question it. So don't question it, and that that's something that that I've I've been finding where it's like yes, question everything, no doubt. But when you find something that resonates so well within you and within your you know the depths of your being, whether it be soul, spirit, whatever. Um, that it's like there's no, there's no need to question it then, and uh, always seek out truth, true objective truth. Then you know we talked a lot about that, and I'm sure I could go off on another rant about that. But uh, those that's that's my closing uh, statement. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much again, Nate, for coming on the show. Hey, man, thanks for having me. That was so much fun. I loved having Nate on the show. I want to keep on doing more interviews like this. If you're getting any value from the show, please leave me a rating as well as a written review. It will really help the show out, be able to find new listeners.